I'm David Goldstein. I'm Brian Brinkman. I'm Jim Hankey. You are tuned in to episode number 80 of Beyond the Pond. Generally speaking, this is the podcast in which Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other bands. These are usually not jam bands because, as you know at this point, we love Fish. We are Fish fans. But the problem with Fish fans is they get a bit myopic. They can tell you statistics and dates and times and what drugs they were on at their favorite fish shows. But then you tell them about other bands and they look at you like you got three heads and that's just not cool. It's not cool at all. And we are here with a purpose and with a mission to help you all. This is a service mission, if you will. And we are sitting here right now in the Russell Hotel which appears to exist only for Instagram influencer pictures. But it's a beautiful space. We're in East Nashville, right around the corner from the Butcher and Bee, right around the corner from Smith and Lentz, right across the street from the Basement East. It's a very good spot. Dave and I are here. This is our second of three episodes from Nashville with love, if you will. Uh, And we are quite excited. We're sitting down with Jim Hankey, the host of the Vinyl Emergency Podcast, which is an excellent podcast that uh, does an overview of the larger vinyl industry, talks with record labels, talks with music writers and musicians. We have been enjoying it for uh, the last, I think I was exposed to about a year and a half ago, Um, have been loving it since since I started listening. And uh, we're really excited for a wide-ranging conversation, aren't we, Dave? Absolutely. Yeah, we very much have some love for the vinyl industry. For the Vinyl Emergency Podcast, this is a setup here that we're not used to having. If you, uh, I would say, don't get too used to the sound quality <laughs> on this podcast because eventually we'll get there. But this is uh, certainly a very special treat for us. I feel like I'm on NPR, NPR right now. Yeah, yeah it's definitely <laughs> as an NPR feel. But we're very excited to do this in East Nashville, just because this is a city that combines many of our loves, being uh, excellent food, excellent music. Just like an excellent scene in general. Harder, could, harder to watch playoff baseball in than we expected, as we learned last night. Yeah, not a great town to watch playoff baseball. <laughs> not a great sports bar town. You got to really beg. If you wanted to bottle the essence of our podcast, you could uh, walk around with like a bottle of something and throw it around East Nashville, and you'd be getting pretty close. This is true. So but anyway, today we're going to talk a, a little bit with Jim. Uh, we're quite excited about this. Uh, should we just jump into the interview here? Yeah. So, um, Jim, we wanted to talk with you a bit about uh, your podcast, The Vinyl Emergency, which has been around since 2016? Yeah, January of 2016. Very cool. So you're uh, about to celebrate four years. Mm -hmm. That's a huge accomplishment as a podcaster. Yeah. Um, Especially on like a solo endeavor, if you will. Yeah. uh, It's it's really exciting. Tell me... um, 
when you started the podcast and kind of as you have grown, like what was kind of the original goal when you started it and how have you seen it grow as, as a podcast for the last couple of years? Sure. So, um, a little bit of my background is that I have been interviewing bands or doing like band PR or some sort of coverage of music in general since I was 15 and okay. I'm 40 now. Um, so uh, there was a very small, uh, teen section in the Milwaukee journal Sentinel at the time, um, called jump. Yeah. And Cameron Crow. Yeah. Right. Kind of. Yeah. That, that's, <laughs> I, yeah, I get, I get that sometimes. Um, so I, I had, uh, basically I didn't want to just write what the other kids were writing. I wanted to talk to musicians that I liked and stuff and, and push to do that. So I don't know, fast forward through, you know, blogging and again, doing like band PR and stuff like that. Um, I had, uh, through a PR connection, had been booking bands on WGN Radio in Chicago, okay. and it's um, obviously not very well-known for their live music and stuff. It's mostly all talk, but there was an opportunity to do that. And um, then through there, a, a fill-in um, uh, film reviewer, Jim Leskowski, had reached out to me and said, hey, have you ever thought about doing you know, vi- uh, like a podcast about vinyl because I had guested on WGN to talk about vinyl through, again, that PR angle. Uh, so I hadn't really thought about it. And then all of a sudden, yeah, January 2016, I'd, I started Vinyl Emergency to pretty much talk about, uh, you know, I'm sure you get this maybe with your podcast with, uh, even in the intro, you guys were talking about like, you know, uh, the, the whole subculture can get pretty myopic. And there is that about vinyl and there is that about comic books and right, there is right. that about cinema, you know, yeah. like it's, you know, to, to get out of your comfort zone, but also welcome new people into sure, it. Sure. So getting into vinyl, I mean, I really got into it um, really, I, I don't want to say recently, but I mean, after 2010, you know, my wife had, I think one Christmas had gotten me a record player and, uh, or gotten me some records and, um, you know, to, to get into it because she's like, you always, you love the stories of albums. You love album art. You love those sorts of things. Why not give vinyl a try? And I did. And here we are. Hmm. Um, so I know what it's like to not know everything about a subject. So, um, vinyl emergency isn't necessarily that one-on-one intro for people, but it's not guarded in the sense of like, oh, you have to know about the Greek pressings of Sgt. Pepper that came out in 1976 to even get what we're talking about. Um, Ideally, it is a place where uh, musicians, um, record label owners, people who make vinyl, press it, people who design it, all that sort of thing, as well as just your normal record collectors, they can come and talk about the effect that vinyl has had on their life. Uh, or, you know, uh, what got them collecting? Do they still collect? Um, what album art really changed their life? What record stores they remember or those that they still champion uh, to other people? Um, and what's really interesting from the musician angle is to talk about, uh, it's, it's not talking about their influences. I think they get, people get asked about their influences a lot. Talking about the first time that their album came out on vinyl mm. or, you know, the, the records they remember around their parents' house those seem to strike a really big chord with people. And um, the, the best compliment I can get is at the end of the interview, um, somebody saying like, wow, I, I hadn't thought about that in 30 years. Or I had a lot of fun because this isn't something I get to talk about very often. Um, you know, We're obviously later going to be talking about you know, really great albums from the last 10 years or even just last year or whatever. And um, musicians, I find, really get a kick out of doing that because it gives them a break from talking about themselves uh, quite a bit and, and promoting 
a record during an album cycle. They get to kind of go back to being a fan. and Yeah, exactly. I think that's what it is. is. I, yeah, I mean, I really enjoy, I've always enjoyed reading about um, bands that are fans of other bands. Like I briefly mentioned Pearl Jam before we hopped on. And that's a band that always, to me, wore their influences on their sleeve and talked about them constantly. Yeah, um, like the Who... Yeah, I mean the Who, Neil Young, um, you know Eddie. If you if you wanted to, I think you would want this band to go back to being like a Fugazi, you know, yeah, I mean, sure. and and the kind of unknown and under the radar. And uh, you know, I really appreciate that. Like that was never, you know, the the, the Pearl Jam would they, they would do covers, or you would see them wearing T-shirts of other bands or articles. They would mention, oh, this the record's really good, or they did the self pollution radio thing back in I think nineteen ninety five which, uh, you know, any radio station could carry it and they would just basically DJ and then play live and stuff. And then you would know like, oh, this is the music they like. Um, I've always found that angle fascinating of not just holding an artist up to, you know, uh, on a, putting the, them on a pedestal, so to speak, of like, oh, they're a creative genius. It's like, well, where did that come from? Right, right, right. And what do they like now? What yeah. do they listen to in the tour bus? Or yeah. what, you know, what record are they going to produce next or something? Um, so that's a very long-winded way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily always pertain to vinyl. Mm. But that's our starting point, usually, with each episode is talking about what records people remember in their parents' house and the record store questions and that sort of thing. And then we get on to any sort of topic about life, about artist rights, about um, depression, um, it, it runs the gamut. Yeah. I know for me, um, just growing up with the vinyl in my parents' house, and I'd say about half of that vinyl is now in my house. Nice. <laughs> yeah. As in, I took it from them because they don't listen to it anymore. <laughs> as in, I stole it. Yes. Well, they I had eat. about, my parents and they had about like four copies of Sgt. Pepper. And I'm like, Dad, between you and Mom, why did you need four copies of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely, Heart Club, uh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band? My dad said, well, I took, I stole my roommate's copy and I think your mom stole, <laughs> stole her roommate's copy. In addition to our own cops, that's why there's like four of them in a box in the basement. I'm like, it's, oh, okay. It's so it's so funny because there's like uh, there's a certain time frame of records where you'll go dig in a used bin and um, people wrote their name right on right. their own records. Like I, I have a copy of like a, a Johnny Cash's uh, Orange Blossom special. Turn it over and it just says Greg in big letters. <laughs> it's like, wow, okay, Greg. You know, like just needed to know. I was I was back in my parents' house for about forty eight hours uh, about a month and a half ago and going through my dad's record collection, similar to what he's talking about, and uh, just put out, took out Bob Dylan's biograph, which isn't on streaming services. Right. And yeah. I just kind of put it on the table and uh, kind of knew what would happen. And my dad, before I left, came up and said, oh, do you want to take this back home? I said, yeah, of course. Yeah, why not? How'd you know? Fantastic. <laughs> All my dad's Neil Young records are no longer his Neil Young records. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I you know, uh, Pet Sounds was one that, like, I have my dad's, um, copy of Pet Sounds. Um, the seams are all split. I mean, you can't even put the thing back in the jacket hardly. But then I bought like an audiophile level copy from um, this this great plant in Kansas called QRP, and they're really well known for doing things right and like uh, half speed mastering and the whole the whole lot. And um, to have both of those, like to hang, to not get rid of my dad's, but then also have like a listenable copy, uh, really means a lot. So. Yeah, it's special. It's funny you were mentioning something when you were talking about why doing the podcast and uh, kind of the goals of, of of various episodes, and you know you were talking about um, uh, getting like deeper into albums career, bands' careers where they put out albums that are particularly not recognized, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in terms of the larger sphere, but like talk about uh, why 
that artist continues to make music, kind of taking them off of that pedestal where they're making an album that may not connect. And we actually talked to um, someone who you had on, uh, Tim Showalter of Strand of Oaks. And one of the first things he said to us when we were talking that was just blew my mind was his his manager who we're working to have on. He's a huge fish fan as Ryan. well. And yeah. yes, Ryan's yeah. a great he's, guy. He was um, he was on my like sixth episode, I think. Was very, it? very, very early on. So very yeah. generous mm-hmm. guy. Um really nice guy. He uh he Tim said the reason why he continues to work with Ryan is that Ryan doesn't care about what his best album is. He cares about what his sixth album is, is like in, in the sense of you know, you may peak creatively at a younger age and connect with more people, but what are you saying when you're in your late 30s? What are yeah. you saying when you're in your mid-40s right. when not as many people are listening, not as many people are paying yeah. attention, but your creativity and your artistic insight really yes. kind of comes out as a person. That's huge. I think about that. I'm, I'm listening nonstop right now to records Dylan put out in the 80s, records Neil Young was putting out in the late 80s, and it's kind of their... Uh, it, it's not as much of an announcement of uh, a cultural zeitgeist from them. It's more them just communicating like between friends in like kind of nuanced and subtle ways. And I tend to like totally. That a bit more and now. you know, bringing it to vinyl, it's very interesting you bring up Dylan yeah. because um, that's one of those things you learn as a record collector. Like you just learn from like friends who record collect, or just just in general, even just pricing. Um, sure. There's a there. You know, you can easily find copies of Street Legal, Planet Waves. Um, you know, th- th- those <laughs> sorts of records. And um, uh, um, there's, a, there's reason a reason for it. For it. Um, you know, but those. But I will say, those records are getting a new look. Like Oh, Mer- oh Mercy, yeah. for example. Like that's a record like you would skip Jeez. constantly, and now it's getting yeah. like people are covering songs off that and whatever. And it's this new appreciation for. Um, this part of his catalog, and I think the bo- infinite, yeah, yeah, like just such right. a great representation of who he was. Totally, I was with Oh Mercy. One of the songs was featured on, I think, because most of the time it was in the High Fidelity soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, yeah, it's a fantastic right. song. I mean, and that was kind of known as like his Daniel Lanois yeah. production. Yeah. People were like, it's such a well produced album, right? right. But it came out before Time Out of Mind, yeah, which was the one that everyone was like, well, right, and that's right. kind of like I think what you're talking about with Tim is like. I would put Time Out of Mind in my top three Dylan records, you know, and it's, and it's like now kind of looked back at as, um, you know, really good. And at the time, I think it won, I don't know if it won album of the year, but it was, you know, a big Grammy year, I think, for him when that came out. Um, but that's one where, yeah, I can hold that against um, Blonde on Blonde and, and yeah. go like, yeah, this is, I mean, still a guy at the height of his powers on his, you know. It's an unbelievable record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On, on like album number, whatever it was, 32 or whatever. It well, is. and at the same time, you don't get to a time out of mind without infidels, Empire Burlesque, mm-hmm. the Christian rock era, yeah. the, you know, uh, everything he was doing in the late 60s, early 70s. Like, you have to go, th- he had to go through those growing pains yes. specifically to make a record like Time Out of Mind, where people who hadn't listened to Dylan in 25 years suddenly go, Oh my God, where's this guy yeah. in? But he had to go through all right, that to make right. that. Right. And, and I don't know if you, this band comes up on, on your show yeah. at all, but like, take a band like The War on Drugs, right? Oh, so it's like, God, so yeah. you don't get The War on Drugs, right? You don't get The War on Drugs without, again, this kind of period of Dylan that we're talking about, or you don't get it without Bruce Hornsby in the range, or you don't get it without Don Henley solo material. Yeah, yeah, I mean that kind of stuff. Where where I can't personally, you know, like um, a, a, a coworker of mine, we he brought in his record player to our office and, and put on um, Donald Fagan's "A Nightfly," and it's just not a record for me. I'm just I do not 
chastise anybody who loves that kind of stuff, but it's just not for me. But yet I can realize the parts of that that make up uh, the, the, the best of like the war on drugs discography, you know? So it's like, you need that stuff. You need that 299 beat up copy of street legal to fuel like, Oh, like, no, I can see value in this, even though, you know, every Rolling Stone or every spin is going to tell you these are the top 25 Dylan songs, you know, and none of them are on that. Yeah. So I want to talk with you just about a couple of your, um, some of the, see, see what some of your favorite episodes oh, yeah. are that you've recorded. Um, I know for us, uh, your, your, your Tim Showalter interview was great. Um, you had Stephen Hyden on, who we've had on our, our podcast a number of times. He's a great, uh, uh, he's a fantastic music writer, but a really great bridge as well between kind of the indie world and the jam world, because he uh, is an admitted uh, jam band yes. newbie in a lot of cases. Yes. And uh, he learns a lot about fish and then goes and spreads the word, the gospel to a lot of people and uh, has done a really good job with like the whole bridge between the indie jam world. But also you had Pat Sands on, on from Wilco, who, yeah. as we speak, they put out yes. a phenomenal yeah. record yesterday. Yeah, a little bit. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, joy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, just talking so about those ones that you mentioned, like Stephen. Um, sure. Uh, Stephen grew up in Wisconsin like me. I grew up, Stephen, I think, has a couple years on me, but I grew up um, very much in, in early college and maybe my mid-20s, like really, really admiring his writing, um, just reading everything yeah. he wrote. Um, for a guy who wanted to be a, a Steve Hyden or wanted to be a David Fricke yeah. or something like that, um, me, uh, th that spoke to me very well. And, and playing in bands... Uh, local bands in Milwaukee, getting Steve to interview me was also like a very big <laughs> high point for me. Um, just a very, mm. you know, I remember it was just a very brief, um, you know, interview for like a segment of uh, the AV Club, I think, in Milwaukee. Or, or yeah, had to be AV Club in Milwaukee. Um, that was a, a big deal uh, to to a band geek like me um, to, to to even get that time with him. And then to, you know, talk with him over the phone and, and have him on the show and talk about uh, vinyl and his... Uh, thoughts of it, not just as a fan, but also uh, as a critic and, and, you know, how much of that plays into what an artist has to do these days to stay relevant and, and those sorts of things. Um, one of my favorite Steve tweets though, is like um, that picture of Jason Isbell, one of my favorite artists and Trey talking at like, I think it's Newport folk or some festival this summer. And he says like, this is like my t-shirts having a conversation <laughs> and it's completely true. It's like, you know, I, I think everybody who's a big, you know, fan of those bands totally gets that. Uh, so Steve, yeah, Steven's great. I just, I, I love his work and his books are incredible. Um, your, your band, your favorite band is killing me. I wrote, I read that in a, uh, in like two days over, you know, just it rained outside when I was up North, uh, in upper Michigan one summer. And, um, I just read it cover to cover in like two days. It's a yeah. fantastic book. Yeah. Um, Tim Showalter, uh, let me tell you about Stranded Oaks. I, this band I, completely, I, I was familiar with Heal and familiar with um, Pope Kill Dragon and stuff, but sure. really didn't hit me until Hard Love came out. And um, Interesting. yeah. Interesting. And, and, yeah, yeah. That was and, the record. And, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'll say uh, my wife and I went to go see Stranded Oaks like several times during that tour. Yeah. Uh, after uh, I had interviewed Tim. And, um, you know, the cool thing about Tim, I'll say, is, well, you know, I, and people should go back and hear the episode, but what's really neat is, I mean, his his excitability is 100% uh, genuine and and totally. um, and almost like I envy it. You know, there's, there's part, parts yeah. of my life with either, you know, work or, um, you know, just uh, anything where, you know, that kind of, um, 
everything's positive vibe is really enviable. And, and, um, you know, for him to have that and to have the grueling touring schedule that he has and then just general life stuff or whatever, but for him to be so kind of happy go lucky and, and every day is a new day and whatever is, is just really cool. Um, the story that kills me is that he, (laughs) uh, and, and, um, his, his most recent record plays into this. Um, he said that he puts his face on album covers specifically so that when he goes to record stores, record clerks recognize him. Uh, and that, I just took it, I, I just thought that was the coolest thing is because it completely plays into vinyl specifically so that like he can like sure. not necessarily go up and like hold you know uh, these records up to his face and go, hey, you know like whatever but like he wants to have that he feels that's his lead into a conversation with the record store people of like, hey man, here's where the good records are at. Or I've been saving this wall record, like, hey, let me make you a deal on it or whatever. Um, that's what's really cool to me is like he actually put the for- the forethought into that of like, no, I have to be on the, co- on the-, on the cover because I'm going to go into record stores in whatever town I'm in and I want them to know that like this is me and, and whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a cool like little anecdote uh, of that. Um, and Pat, I mean um, – I've been a fan of Wilco just for so long. Um, people can, uh, another episode they can dig into is, because I don't want to spend all of your podcast talking about this because it's a too long of a story, but um, Autumn DeWild, who uh, photographed um, Wilco the album and many other great records, oh, okay. um, Beck's oh, Sea Change okay, okay. and uh, Jenny yeah. Lewis's The Voyager, and uh, Elliot, she's got a whole book on Elliot Smith. Mm-hmm. Just an incredible photographer. But uh, long story short is um, I, I held the cake on Wilco, the album, um, there's a, there's a, yeah, there's a photo. So I'm not on the out. Al- I'm not part of that shot at all, but there was a photo shoot. I was a part of where I got to hold that cake. Okay. So that's a okay. really fun interview because autumn and I hadn't connected uh, since then. And then we bring it up and she's kind of like, Oh my God, you're some, you know, the guy you didn't get to ride the camel. And I didn't get to ride the camel. No, no, no. no. But, um, okay. so Wilco, that <laughs> just means that Wilco has just been a really big band to me. And, um, to get invited into Pat's home and sit down and look at his records and talk with him about stuff. And he's just got an incredible story about his dad, a hilarious story about his dad wanting to book Wilco after Pat joined the band, um, which people okay. should really hear. It's very, very, very funny. And that's the kind of stuff. It's like, you know, I, I, I even put that out, I think, yesterday when the album came out. It was like, these are the kind of stories that I love to come out. It's it's funny. It's kind of awkward, but it's ultimately a sweet story. And it's um, that kind of stuff that um, any conversation, when you sit down with a, a friend over a beer or whatever, like those are the kind of conversations I'm um, – trying to put out there into the world. It's yeah. hopefully something people wouldn't normally read in a stereo gum interview or, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, those three, I mean, are really great. I mean, some other ones that I think are, uh, gosh, I mean, just going through, I think as we're recording this, I think one thirteen is going to come out um, next week. Um, but, but I'm curious, you know, just based on, we were talking earlier about um, kind of, weird albums that didn't totally connect with fans, uh, but maybe in hindsight uh, have more influence. And I think about it with the Wilco album that came out yesterday. I think it's one of the best that they've ever put out. And I think it's uh, this, this whole stretch they've been on since 2014. I've, I've personally have thought of as second career peak, but I did not connect with the Wilco, the album initially it's, it's been in looking backwards. Um, it makes more sense to me now. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that record. Yeah. So, yeah, so um, there, there are uh, honestly for a record that I 
can look at and know like that's Mater's restaurant in Milwaukee <laughs> where that where that camel's standing, and I held that cake and whatever. It's true. Not every song connects with me. There are many that do, but not not everyone. And I'll I'll say that. Um, Schmilko and Star Wars did not connect with me Interesting. Uh, okay. hardly at all yeah. um, because I feel like those are ideas of songs. Mm. They're not fully fleshed out. Um, maybe it's volume. Maybe it's Jeff's, um, the last several albums going back to like the, the, this whisper kind of singing. I don't know what it is, but those two albums did not connect with me as a, as a listener. Um, I do think this one, for as little time as I've had to digest it, is their best since The Whole Love. I mean, The Whole Love is just such a fantastic record, too. Seems like, to me, um, Wilco the Owl and Pearl Jam's Riot Act, that kind of marks the point in their careers where their album is not so much product, but that's the point when they no longer guarantee like the lead review and pitchfork on that Friday... Oh, yeah. That okay. they have the same set of fans that is guaranteed to be seeing them. Mm-hmm. So, making records is kind of just what they do. That's their job. Sure. And those sure. albums, there's going to be like, no one's going to be yelling for like Crop Duster or like Country Disappeared. <laughs> there's just, there's deep, that's there's a, deep cuts that yeah. stay deep for a reason. Okay. That's, that's an interesting take because there are two very different albums from it. Like, I would say Wilco, the album is very, uh, although there's some, um, Bull Black Nova is a little dark mm. and like whatever. Like in general, the album is not dark. Right. In, right. in general, it's very. But then Riot Act, what well, the reason it's my least favorite Pearl Jam album Me too. is be, is because it's so dirgy. Because there's there's no hope. I feel there's not a whole lot of hope on that record. No, that was the Bush um, era, which at the yeah, time yeah. seemed as dirgy as you could get. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yes, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I don't, you know, there's 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 tracks, there's random songs I'll go back to on Riot Act, but as an album, I can't get into it, and it's not because. Like, I don't mind when Pearl Jam gets political. Sure. Okay? Like, I, I share, I think I probably said this even, you know, I'm probably repeating myself from uh, the Great Albums podcast, which we talked about before uh, we hopped on about uh, Pearl Jam's yield. Yes. But, like, I think I think I probably said this there. But, like, I, I share probably 99% of the political beliefs that Pearl Jam has. Right. Um, but I, I, I skip Bush Leaguer. I skip the stuff that's, like, super overly bash you over the head with it just because it doesn't make for great songs mm. like it's like uh it's i share that sentiment yes but i can't like pl- play this and have an emotional connection to it for some reason you know what i mean right is very it looks at the album cover it's dark yeah. it's dirgy and the kind of i said like where does pearl jam go from it's kind of faceless it's like in general like it like and yeah, yeah i like it more than i used to sure yeah, yeah it's yeah. got some songs like love boat captain's a pretty good jam um Ghost. There's like some other Matt Cameron contributions. Well, Save You's on that, right? right. Save You, I right. thought it was a pretty good song. Uh, but yeah, just in general. I mean, it does kind of represent the end of an era for them in the same way that I think Wilco the album did for Wilco. Um, I think... I'm, I'm, I love Pearl Jam, and I'm certainly a bigger Wilco fan than I am a, a Pearl Jam fan. I in in the way I hear it, and I think it'd be interesting to hear what you have to say about this, but um, I, I think Wilco the album... Almost felt like, remember in the 90s, people were talking about like sure. the end of history, and yes. then like 9-11 happened, and oh, wow, we're actually, yeah, yeah. we're still living in history, and I almost feel like Wilco the album was like, and Riot Act, similar in that sense, like the end of uh, new music from these bands, and they're almost kind of like what Dave, Dave was saying, if you go back in time to like a classic rock era, this is when they transition into like greatest yeah. hits tours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I I tend to find Wilco albums since 2014 when Sucre came out. Um, I, I personally, and I totally see why you, why you 
someone wouldn't, but I, I personally loved Star Wars and Smilko especially. Um, to me, that uh, those represented this like new creative rebirth for them. Um, I don't know if I've personally heard that from Pearl Jam in their last two records. I, I have enjoyed them. Um, and I think where they have been successful in ways that I think a lot of bands at their level wouldn't have been is that they've poured so much energy into the yeah. live show yeah. that mm-hmm. the live show is not just, you're not just going there to hear uh, a six or eight song, you know, 45 minute segment of the last half of the show being all the hits. Mm-hmm. You're going there for the surprises. Yeah. yeah, completely. And I think, you know, that that's a big thing for Pearl Jam with me is that, you know, I, I got to see him in Milwaukee in 2014 and they did um yield from tobacco wow. um and that was a big thing of like being on the great albums podcast talking about that album um it was neat to relay some of that feeling into into that um and because i remember when they did it it was a couple nights beforehand on social media people were going nuts because <laughs> because in moline illinois they were randomly doing no code front <laughs> to back and i was like oh man like i missed out on that i can't believe that you know, they won't do something that cool in milwaukee and then they do and they do it like six songs in like randomly you know like it's uh, all of a sudden you're on the third song and i'm that guy going they're doing it they're doing it you know and everyone's like what are you talking about like so um that that is what's that's what's so cool about Pearl Jam is that they change everything up. They you know posters, you know some new poster every night. Um, you know these the covers that they, covers. I mean that they can just like bring out of nowhere a, jo, a random Joe Strummer cover from you know this time with the Muscaleros and not the Clash. You know necessarily. Yeah, all their last shows. Um, yeah, all their. I mean that's the thing. Yeah, I mean like that's that's the thing too. Like. Um, to to be able to the next day basically pay ten bucks or whatever it was to to get a download of that. Um, I will say to your point about like um, about about the Wilco yeah. thing, like it's it's interesting because there there's definitely a part a, a I don't know what it's I'm forty yeah. I I don't know what it's like to have heard and discovered Pearl Jam like ten fifteen years ago. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I like I guarantee that like Pearl Jam wasn't making any new fans. With Riot Act, or maybe even Binaural, and Binaural I like quite I a bit, right, right? But I mean, like, I don't know if they were like people discovering them on right, that album, right, and going right. like, oh, they, you know, whatever. Just like Wilco, like I'm not sure when the point is is when they start. Like maybe they start making new fans now. Maybe there are people who've discovered them through other acts and go, oh, they're kind of this legacy band. Oh, okay, they didn't find them with AM or they didn't know Uncle Tupelo or whatever. Like I'm not sure what that's like, you know, because like that's my sure. experience. So like I'm not sure, you know, um, what it's like to have discovered these bands midway or towards the you know quote unquote end of their their runs. Um, to to have that look at it is is very interesting we, we see a lot i mean it's interesting from a fish standpoint we see it on twitter a lot we're, we're pretty active in the fish twitter community and um there are a lot of people that you'll get into conversations with and inevitably it leads to well how'd you discover fish or what was kind of your first fish show i'm constantly amazed and constantly shocked by how many people i'm talking to right now who started listening to fish in the last five years and oh, interesting. it's, it's wow. fascinating to me because i got into fish at the time, what I thought was relatively late. And um, I think that there's this for a lot of subcultures. I definitely found it for fish is um, you kind of have to get over a hurdle of information that you know 
before you can start shedding your opinions. And it's very protective within the fish community okay. because of the way that the band grew. They grew word of mouth. So if you were there early on, you were there when nobody cared. And yeah. you were part of the reason why this band grew and had the success that they had. And so you feel this sort of shared ownership. And I know like I became a fan during their first hiatus in 2001 and I had just never really been introduced to them. And someone introduced me and the concept of a band playing a different set list every night, playing really wild covers, and then taking songs that sounded one way on a studio album and could be 25 minutes and totally different every single time they play it. Just blew, it, it really combined music and sports for me in, in this sort of yeah. like statistical following and very historical for where you name a date is the same way as like, um, you know, I could say for you like... Uh, I don't know, like September 2008, and you immediately can probably think of three CC Sabathia games that like blew you away at that point. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Like, sure, um, sure, yeah. And and oh and, and that sort of that's like the that, that was a huge connection point for me. But um, you find it, it's wild to me now that fish in either. <sighs> You know, their 2015 tour was really excellent, or the Baker's Dozen that they did where they played 13 straight shows with no repeats at Madison Square Garden in summer 2017, or this uh, album that they created in as another band in Halloween 2018. All these little moments that, like, attract people who had no idea about Fish beforehand and are now going through the back catalog of the band 35 years in. It's a really strange thing. That's so interesting because I feel like the... Um, being on the outside of, of fish uh, in the community, it is uh, a hurdle for me to understand how this version of this song from 1997 is better than this version that they did at this venue in 2002 or whatever. Like it's, it's, it seems so like, how can you memorize all this? Like, how can you go back and compare and like whatever? So that's, it's again, it's interesting to me for sure, but it's from a, from a newbie standpoint, it is just like, where, where do you start? You know? And that's why, that's why analyze fish was so neat to me as a podcast is because like, I was already a fan of, of both Harris and Scott. Uh, and then, uh, but to hear, to, to feel Scott's like naivete with the whole thing. And like, I do, I think it's ridiculous that you are like, you're a college graduate and you're like right. this band or whatever. Right. <laughs> but then, but then Harris, like I got the, I got the sense from Harris of like, no, like he's championing fish and talking about them the way I do talk about my favorite bands. Yeah. So it's like, so I could get both sides of it. And that's why I th- thought it was so, so interesting. So, but then I started to see like reviews of Hoist and stuff and being like, okay, well, this is, um, you know, and, and the, the, the general vibe of course was like, okay, it's a Grateful Dead type kind of band the more I read and everything like that. And then Billy Breathes comes out in 1996 and it's the first time they're getting like radio airplay, like, and like uh, at least alternative yeah. rock, like major alternative rock radio yeah. station airplay. Cause like, I think you could probably by then I knew like a picture of nectar and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, like I get, and I liked that album quite a bit. I was like, I was quote unquote discovering them, but not like I had no real drive to see them live or anything like that. But I was like, oh yeah, I like the CD or whatever. But Billy breathes came out and I just remember loving Billy breathes so much because it, 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 um, at that time, I guess for me, it chopped away the fat, like which was, and to me, the fat was the jamming, or the fat was the you know super long sound, songscapes and stuff. Uh, however, I know that that's like such a major part of that band, and that's I don't know how Billy Breeze is looked at in the Fish community. You guys can probably tell me that, but for me, like that album, like 
um, like um, Waste is such a good song and um, um, Free, I think is just, Free is just such a, just overall, just such a great, great song. Um, you know, even the, the little instrumental, like, um, trains, buses, planes, I forget the Fire name. Fire Bus? Yes. yes. So, I mean, that, that's a neat little, you know, you mid kind of, album you, kind of jam. You kind of did the mash with that because the album has train song and cars, yeah, trucks, that's buses, right. So you're like cars, trains. Yes, yes, yes. So, uh, how is, so yeah, tell me, how is Billy Breeds viewed in the, the fish community overall? Well, I think a lot of people still okay. think it's the best studio yeah. album. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think that they've the, the the hardest thing for me, and I think Dave and I have talked about this as a massive Fish fan, but as a fan of great albums, is um, it's that's the closest I think Fish has come to making a truly great album. Um, my personal favorite of theirs is called Round Room, which was the one that it came out in late two thousand two, right after uh, uh, the, their first hiatus, and it's um, it sounds like a lot of demos, so it's really kind of raw, just them in the studio, and I love the songs from that era, um, but Billy breathes. Uh, they really worked hard on that on that record. It's it's thematic. It flows incredibly well. It doesn't just sound like these are ten new yeah. songs that we're throwing on a record. Um, and sonically, Steve Lillywhite. <sighs> Steve Lillywhite has produced it. There's something about so so part of what makes a fish concert so special is that um, literally anything can happen. They walk on stage and they don't know the set list, yeah. and that first song. Could be a huge song that they haven't played in. Like I, I just recently saw them in Colorado. They opened up the whole run with a song that had only been played once in the middle of another song, and was never really like a fan favorite song. But it was the first time it was played in four years. It was the first time you were hearing it as a standalone. It's really sure. weird yeah, stuff yeah, like yeah. that that can happen yeah, yeah, yeah. that you just kind of have to accept. And when they jam, um, it's they've clearly locked into an idea and are just going to explore it until it's over. And their albums always find, feel very restrictive. Um, whereas I, I, I feel like I hear a lot of records that um, I love that um, have thematic purpose and thematic flow to it. And a lot of times there are bands that will make an album that don't necessarily translate that live as well to the stu- to the yeah. or to the to the arena. Yeah. Um, but the album is where you hear them like fleshing out a lot of ideas. And I, I always wish that Fish would either spend just a little bit more time in the studio, just trying to figure out a way to like bridge these songs together or expand on these ideas or less time like they did with Round Rim where they just throw something out there. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting to me. It's something that comes up on, on Vinyl Emergency quite a bit is your, you mentioned an album from 2002 being like pretty much your favorite. And you said earlier that your gateway was like in 2001. So it's like the album that you discover or like vaguely discover the band on usually becomes your favorite. Like it's it's hard to sway somebody from like, no, I know you discovered them in 1997 on this record, but uh, their best is uh, yet to come or their best was 20 years ago or whatever it was. It's hard for you to disconnect that like first from initial moment. that emotional, totally. that emotional tie. And th- I think that comes up a lot on the, on the show. The one thing I'll say about vinyl and fish is um, record store day is like, is a really, really big deal for vinyl collectors or um, a craw in their, or, or a, a, <laughs> however you want to say it, a, a, a stick in their craw or a thorn in their side. Yeah, exactly. I, I love I love it. Um, there have been years certainly where on the big list of stuff that comes out, there's maybe not anything for me, but I'm encouraged by Dave Matthews Band, by Fish, by um, the Dead certainly. I mean, there'll, there'll be stuff to put out from the Dead for years and years to come. But to see stuff like a live one or to see like I'm going to get the title wrong. Was it Slip, Stitch, and Pass? Yeah. Okay, wow. Okay, cool. Um, stuff like that to be hitting – 
record stores and people like, again, like your younger fish fans or something, picking that up and being able to take that home. And they weren't able to do that in 1993 or 1995 or whatever it was. Um, Billy sure. Breed's even coming to vinyl. You know, I'd never thought I'd see that. Yeah. I mean, that, that kind of stuff where um, now they can start to repackage. And uh, truthfully, it is another um, form of income for them when they're not touring and stuff like that to be like, oh shit, maybe we should put out Baker's Dozen, you know, something, whatever it's, I don't even know if you could do Baker's Dozen, but you could do, the, yeah, okay, so, no, so stuff like that, you know, like, um, yeah. you know, to, to have that be a way that fans can now kind of newly uh, explore the band or whatever on album sides and stuff is, uh, is a really cool thing. I, I love, like, I was a big Dave fan for a while. I think uh, Before These Crowded Streets is probably my favorite Dave Matthews record. Really? And yeah, uh, well, it's just one of those things. Like it's it's it. They got dark, like on that one. You know what I mean? Like it's just like one of those things where it's just like, oh, like Dreaming this band Street has another. Has yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a you know this band has like another side to them, I guess. The Stone, the Last Stop. Yeah, yeah. So right, right. Don't drink the water, all that song. stuff. Yeah, so yeah. um, so I remember a big deal being when Red Rocks came out, like on CD yes. for the first time. I just remember that. Like so, then to see like I haven't been a Dave fan in probably two decades, and then that hits on vinyl and there's, there's a ping in me. That's like, Ooh, like, I wonder if I need that, you know, because like it meant a lot to me at that time and I still haven't bought it, but like, wow, to have that on like four discs, you know, or four LPs now, you know, and to uh, explore that box and whatever that is. And, and, you know, those kind of bands like Dave and fish, they, they step up uh, on record store day to put out really cool, stuff that if I like was a devotee of these bands, I guarantee I would put down 65, 75, 85 bucks for this stuff. Yeah. I hadn't seen Dave Matthews since 1998. And then last year, Farm Aid happened to be in Hartford, Connecticut, which is where my parents to live around there. So I went with some uh, friends, and my wife to Farm Aid. The purpose being, um, we wanted to see like Neil Young and yeah. that's who I wanted to see. But then they had, Dave and Tim did their duo thing there, and I was like shocked that I still knew like every word to every song they were playing. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is number forty-one, and I found myself like singing the Leroy Moore saxophone parts. Like, oh, that was kind of fun. And then oh, after great. Dave and Tim, half the crowd left. Oh wow! And then it yeah. was Neil Young and all like the sixty-five-year-old drunken wahoos for like fucking Willie Nelson yeah, were there. But, yeah, my wife, she's a trooper. It was cold, and she didn't have a jacket, and she was kind of miserable by the time Neil Young came on. But So let me, let me ask a, let me ask yeah, a yeah. fish question here. So um, I do know that – I know enough to know that uh, every Halloween they do a like, – like we were saying, like an album or, or, or whatever. Uh, I do know that they did the White Album one mm -hmm. year and you're you're saying that they've made up this fictitious band which i'm gonna have to look into now or whatever has vote vox it's on spotify I no, said. no idea yeah. okay <laughs> um so but that that's something that really intrigues me because as, as a big pearl jam fan i'm just such a fan of them not sticking to set lists or doing yeah. things a little differently or even eddie will have a different vocal take on like black or something one night right. it's like okay good i like that version of that so i get that to to a point but like what other uh, for an education for myself, what other sure. albums um, have they done uh, live? Um, what are good ones? What are looked at as bad sets? Like, eh, they didn't need to do that or whatever. Um, so in terms of, like, the covers that they've done, uh, I would say you're the personally the best two that they did were in 1996, they covered the Talking Heads' Remain in Light, okay. 
which um, really pushed their sound in a completely different direction. They started focusing at, at the time they had transitioned into arenas about a year earlier, and they were trying to figure out a way to transition their sound from very guitar-led uh, kind of psych noise-based jamming into something a little bit more communal and democratic. Okay. Right. And so playing that record brought naturally the rhythm section of the band, Fishman and Mike, as well as Paige's keyboards, much more to the center. Okay. And Trey was able to take something of like a symbolic step backwards. And that led to 1997, which many fans will tell you is the best year of the band. The fall tour from 1997 is highly regarded as probably the best tour that they ever embarked on. Okay. Um, I would disagree. I think d the fall 95 tour is their best tour, but it, it fall 97, there's not a bad show. Um, even the bad shows or the lesser quality shows are all worth hearing. Um, and the band connects in a way that um, uh it's it sounds they sound like one instrument throughout cool. much of the throughout okay. much of the tour, um, and then in 1998 they played "Loaded" by the Velvet Underground, okay, which was a huge curveball, yeah, yeah, uh, which is a, a, a taboo word in the Fish community, but um, <laughs> but they, it was it was a huge left turn that um, uh, most fans did not know the album at the time, and it really showcased an an ability for them to uh, interpret quality songwriting into their repertoire and also the the unique thing about that particular Halloween set is they jammed all of those songs at least five or six minutes longer than they normally are. Oh cool. Okay. So you take this album that's like thirty eight, you know, not even, probably like thirty five minutes long and they played it over the course of an hour. Right. And it's really, really quality. Would would you agree with those? Yeah. Oh no, I would definitely say a command of life from ninety six and loaded from ninety eight, which also it had fish fans going back and rediscovering, just plain old discovering the Velvet Underground. Yeah. They're like, okay, these guys are kind of a proto-jam band because they can play Sister Ray for probably 40 minutes like any given night. And then stuff like the Velvet Underground kind of paved the way for some of the more like indie jam type acts now, like a Chris Forsyth in the sense that they don't sound like a traditional quote-unquote jam band like the Waka Waka Funk riffing, yes. but they still like to improvise. Yeah. Like I've been seeing a lot of bands of that nature that kind of take the cues from like television and then people will say, yeah, these aren't like a jam band because they don't, you know, they aren't like bearded white guys making like funk riffs and curly cues and singing about drugs, but this is like levels of improvisation I'm not used to hearing in like rock That's music. That's interesting, yeah. I would say if you're looking for a commercially released live album in which to really get into the band, I mean, I think you just got to start with the best being New Year's 1995, which I think among many fans is arguably the best fish show ever played. Definitely top five in terms of... Really showcases everything yeah. that they can do over three sets. Uh, and the, the jams during that show um, are some of the best jams that they've ever played on some of their best songs. So you hear the best songs and then you hear them in versions where you know the, there's a version of Weekapod Groove, a uh, version of You Enjoy Myself, a version of Drowned that... Um, Mike's song that all John being the Who cover the Quadrophenia yes mm -hmm. okay. they could all be up there as top three or four best nice. versions of each song play yeah so like I mean the the whole thing about um, and this ties in a little bit about like what I've what I like about Nashville 
the little bit that I've seen of it, because I, I was telling Brian before I got here, like, uh, or before we recorded that, but, uh, you know, my wife and I moved here a year ago. Uh, we had a baby very quickly after that, and so we've been relative homebodies. We've gotten out and seen some really cool shows and stuff, but, like, um, you know, not two people who would do up Nashville if they just moved here, you know, it's the kind of thing. But what I've always loved about live music is when uh, a band does a cover and you know it's a cover and other people don't know necessarily or you don't know you don't know what they're playing and somebody in the front row is like oh my god you know like freaking out because they know they know what it is so i can picture going to one of these shows and and knowing that they're gonna play a surprise album and that first like 10 20 seconds where you the people around you might know what it is or you're discovering that you know what it is or, or anything, you know, no announcement, no anything. That's the magic that is, uh, is so surreal, uh, with the live music experience. And I can picture that being such a cool thing. And, uh, the, the Nashville part of it is this only happened like a month or two ago is my wife and I went to, um, a country Western night at the basement East, um, Mm. venue here. And it was set up by, uh, this drummer, uh, Jerry Pentecost, who um, has played with uh, Amanda Shires, uh, an artist I really like. Um, he was her drummer, either either still is or uh, was for a very long time. And he's just known around Nashville as this session guy who's just very, very good. And um, I think he won an award during the Americana Fest last year. I mean, just really looked at as a highly regarded man about town who brings people together and does nights like, like this, this country western night. And it's him and five other musicians, you know, bass, guitar, keys, fiddle, and um, steel uh, guitar. Mm. And all these other um, singer-songwriters come up and they're doing their covers of country-western songs from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, Lily Hyatt, one of my wife and I's favorite artists, uh, did a Shania Twain song that I didn't know. And my wife could not believe that I didn't know the Shania Twain song. And it's just one of those things that, like, didn't hit. Like, I knew Shania Twain's, like quote-unquote hits, but I didn't know, like, this one song from right. from an album. It was probably a hit. I, I don't know, but, like, it was the rare instance where my wife looked at me and was like, I can't believe you don't know this song. Like, that, that very rarely happens. Um, so I just appreciated a night like that where, and I, it, it's almost like living vicariously through these artists where it's like, wow, you had to, like, practice this on your on your own or with this band like like I just appreciate that five or six guys can get together and learn like 60 songs yeah. and just do them with the 20 or so artists who are going to come through and take the mic that night. That's a really neat thing to me that I like I wish I could do. Like I think if I had more time I could picture like maybe not even playing it but like wanting to organize it. Like even during Americana Fest I know that there was a uh, I think a tribute night to the Carpenters. Oh, you know, and it was just like, you know, so like a band like that had to learn how many ever Carpenter songs and then these other artists are going to come up and do like two songs a piece and whatever and maybe at the end of the night there's some jam or something like that. Like great like that that speaks to me as far as like that's what I would even in Milwaukee like that's a night I would go see in Milwaukee, that's a night I would like to see in Nashville that's like the the unexpectedness of that and then the and then the dedication of six guys who don't normally play together to play together and learn all these songs just for this night and then like okay that was fun like what a cool thing like right, that, right, that right. i mean that's just that that stuff blows my mind so um i want to transition and and talk a little bit about uh 
record collections. Yeah. And, and we've talked a lot about, um, I, I think, a lot of ways like how to find uh, the, the records that, that are kind of underappreciated for artists that we care about, um, you know, throughout this conversation. And um, I'm curious from you, for someone who runs a podcast that uh, discusses the entire vinyl industry, um, do you have, like, off the top of your head or, like, for anyone who is wanting to get a record collection off the ground, what is kind of your advice and what what, what do you suggest that people do um, to to follow that sort of passion and that sort of passion. Sure, sure. Um, one thing that comes to mind, uh, I was in a record store in Chicago um, a couple of years ago, and uh, a, a girl was asking, and I, and I do think this was sad to say, I do think this might have been due to gender, was asking the clerk, uh, the, the guy behind the counter, about Beatles records. Basically, okay. she wanted to start a Beatles collection or she wanted to at least get into it and whatever. And he's telling her flat out, yeah, you're never going to find a Beatles used record uh, because they're just too rare and everybody loves the Beatles. So you might as well just buy the new reissues that that are out, which are, you know, whatever, $25, dollars right, right, right. It was just like I just it took everything in me not to interrupt and and just flat out say that that's not true. Like, it's, <laughs> I mean, th- there is a lot of. um kind of talking about what you mentioned before about getting into a community and like you kind of only know what you know and then you you have to edu- either educate yourself or rely on others to educate sure. you. And that's kind of what vinyl is. And, and as I said at the beginning, that's that's the same with comic books or that's the same with collecting tea kettles or whatever it is. Like you, you can really only know what you're exposed to and sure. then learn from others or learn, Oh, that's not how you treat a needle. Oh, that's not how you do, you know, whatever. So like the, the whole point of the show is like to just sort of demystify and educate on, on matters of like vinyl mastering and like sure. keeping your records clean and that sort of stuff. Um, and never to hold anybody accountable for like what they know or what they don't know and, and, and to shame them and to be Jack Black and high fidelity basically. Um, you know, how you get a record collection off the ground really just pertains to you and you alone. It's all going to be about preference. Um, I could recommend records to you both under the radar and classic albums, and they may not connect with you. Sure. It's just going to all be about you and your preference and, and how you were influenced growing up and what your tastes are. Um, you know, you can still find estate sales. You can find... Um, you know, Goodwill is kind of caught on now, unfortunately, for his great, all the good work that Goodwill does, you know, now they're starting to price records, you know, like six and $10 when they used to be a buck, you know, obviously, uh, Ann Murray and, um, you know, sing along with Mitch and all these, you know, all this stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it takes a, it takes a keen eye, you know, it's one of those things where how, how deliberately careful do you want to be with your records? If you want to find $5, absolute mint condition records that's a hard journey if you're gonna but if you want to find like you know hey like this looks interesting for two bucks or no i i really want to get the new bony bear because it's really interesting and great and i'm sure it would sound awesome on vinyl because of the the warmth and just the overall how that album plays from front Mm. to back and looking at the liner notes and all the pictures and whatever it's so up to the person you know what i mean like i mean i i'm trying to think of another way of like you know, how do I get into Stephen King? Well, there's the classics or there's these other books which like no movies have been made of that, 
you know, people really like and the, you know, maybe these are the ones to start with. Um, it can really go any route. And I hope that's not a non-answer, but it's one of those things where I think it's really sage advice. Cause I think, I think part of the challenge with, uh, people, and I, and I know I felt this before I started buying records was, well, what do I have to have in my collection that kind of like speaks about, you know, I have yeah. a vinyl collection and, and I know as I started just buying records, it was, well, what do I want to hear? What do yeah. I want to have? What am I? And, 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 my dad always, um, you know, used to profess the the brilliance of a vinyl record versus uh, Spotify or an iPod. Was you know you had a record player on one side of the room, everyone sat on the other side of the room. You had to have a record that you were willing to put on that you knew for twenty five, thirty, whatever, however many minutes per, per side. Um, nobody was going to make the effort to get up and go and flip it because you really weren't going to yeah. change songs. That's way yeah. too much effort, and so. Um, you know, for me, it was, well, what records do I really want to spend time with? And that was kind of yes. the starting place for me. And I realized over time that, well, that's what my collection looks like, is what I spend a lot of time with. That's exactly yeah. it. That is exactly it. That is, I mean, the, to a T, um, the records that I, and I still buy new music. There's plenty of, of like, I will I will get the new Wilco on vinyl. I will new, I will get the new Bon Iver. Um, I will get records. There's a great, great band from New Zealand called The Beths that people should really check out. It's a power um, pop that, band. That yeah. gave yeah. Yeah, that gave it gave me goosebumps. Like I hadn't heard from a new band or haven't felt from a new band in a very long time. So there's plenty of stuff that I will go and try. The point being is that my collection definitely, definitely is very heavy on the stuff that made an impact on me in high school. Like sure. the, the the time when I gave music the most of most of my life. You know what I mean? Like um, getting home from school, closing the bedroom door, and playing. CDs and tapes and <laughs> taping stuff off the radio or whatever totally. it was, you know? Um, so, and truly that's what podcasting is. I, I have a feeling like if you talked with 10 people who podcast, they'd be like, I was the guy in my backyard pretending to be a DJ, introducing songs. <laughs> like here's one tape going into another tape and whatever. And it's like, that's, that was totally me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, like the record, the record collection going back to high fidelity, you know, when, when Jack Black tells that customer, like, I can't believe you don't own Blonde on Blonde. Yes, there's part of me that's like, well, yeah, of course, it's a, such a great album. And, like, Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands is, like, mm. one of the greatest D-sides you'll ever find. Like, it's just such a great album. However, I'm not going to be the one beating you over the head if you don't have right. it. Like, tell you tell it's me how great Planet he did, he did, like, the you hard know? sell. Yes. Whereas the other yes, guy right. was more like, okay, if you like Green Day, then you like Stiff Little Fingers. Right? Stiff Little Fingers, right. So, um, you know, it just plays into, it, it is exactly what you said. It is, uh, what what do I want to hear? Not what do I have to have by somebody's definition. You're, you're automatically setting up your, yourself by somebody else's definition of what you have to have. And your record collection should, should speak to you and you alone. And y yes, it should influence other people. You bring people over and go, you got to hear this record, or you got to hear this record this way, or this pressing of something. Because yeah, there might be little changes that you can sure. hear. I mean, there are albums I played to death in the mid 90s and early 2000s that I have on vinyl now and I hear something different. I hear a bass note that I didn't hear before all those 500,000 times that I played it before. But the, th the thing is, is like that person's going to leave your record collection and go play their own or go expand on their own and get stuff and add it to it that um, that only speaks to them. And, and maybe you influence them in some way, but it can only be for them. And sure. like that's, that's the thing. If people are listening to this and then, you know, to your point, wanting to start a record collection, 
start with the stuff that means a lot to you. Start with that stuff and then expand on or read about records that might have influenced those albums or whatever. And they might not speak to you. You might buy something, you know, I do listen to Spotify. I, I absolutely pre-listen to records that I, you know, like, because vinyl's an investment. Do I want to spend well, 15 to $40 on something? Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, do I want to spend that time and that money on something that might be a dud? It does suck. Like, absolutely. Um, but that's your journey. And that's like, you know, what you got to do to weed out the fat, kind of like what we were talking about before. It's like, uh, have your collection be a representation of you and not make it feel like you've got to own this copy from this band, uh, you know, th this thing. Like, it's just, it can be whatever you want it to be. We like to preach on this podcast what we call responsible Spotify usage, which is to say, <laughs> yes. like paper Spotify, and if there's one record you keep listening to like 12, 13, 14 times, then buy that vinyl or yes. buy a ticket to the show, buy a shirt yeah. at the show, like find some way to support the band that you obviously love other than Spotify, because Spotify is great for on the go, in the car, in your headphones, but if that's all that you do... Then they're getting the short end of the stick. That is that is exactly correct. Or as a record label founder once told us, uh, if you really like a song, just keep pressing play over and over again like a thousand times, so <laughs> just, they just get the revenue from the <laughs> just have it on just have it on repeat. Because if you if you just buy phones you for don't, specific, you go to sleep. that's what people need to do. Just buy a phone for every album that you love. <laughs> And get a Spotify account for each one of those, and then just play it and then nonstop. Return, return goes right to them. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you, sooner or later, you're funding their next tour. Well, that's right? what I, I love a lot about. Uh, I don't know if you use uh, Bandcamp. That, that I app. do. Yeah. Uh, I love that you you get the the free listen. Uh, I think it's like three or four listens per per record, and you get that. And by the third time you listen to a record, you probably know at that point in time that it's something you're almost addicted to. Like yes. I'm listening to pretty much on a daily basis, I'm listening to a new record so that there's like a time every day for for that. Uh, sometimes more more than that if there's a, a, a bunch of releases recently that I need to catch up on. But um, there, there are a lot of records I'll give one listen to, maybe one and a half. Uh, probably the vast majority of records I listen to get that. And then there's that record that I just can't get out of my head. And uh, for me... What I love about Bandcamp is it gets you to that point, and then it says, "Hey, it looks like you've been listening to this a lot. Why don't you buy this?" Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, exactly. yeah, it's a pretty novel concept. No, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> that, that, there, there is, you know, there are uh, plenty of records that I put on, um, uh, just doing dishes, you know, yeah, and just sure. like and just like uh, put it on and zone out and uh, and listen to, and then yeah, then I've got to have it on vinyl and I got to see, you know, because. Again, you know, this is one of those things where a lot of people talk about like liner notes with albums, where something was recorded, sure. who, who whose voice is that singing back up on track six, stuff you're just never going to find digitally now. You have to go elsewhere to, you have to be a sleuth to find that information deliberately, whereas you can buy a record and you just know it. Well, you know, I, it's just I, printed there. I found as well having a, a four-year-old son who is into, is very curious about the world, very curious about things, um, being able to hang out with him and tell him to go pick out a record, and then he gets to look at it, he gets to hold it, and he usually picks it out based on um, uh, the color of the record and then what the album cover looks like and if he likes the design. And it's a very unique way for to, to, to pick out a record on a day-to-day -day basis, but it gives him the chance to like actually feel music. Totally, and I look forward to that with my... He's turning one 
uh, later this uh, this month, and uh, that's something I definitely look forward to. And you know, we've had I've, I think the first album I played for him on vinyl was. Um, a Sailor's Guide to Earth from Sturgill Simpson, mm. um, which is a very, if you know anything about that record, is very much a record to his son yeah. about like, uh, I can't be here all the time. I have to, uh, like now that I've I've been blessed with this career, I have to go do this. But please know that like I'm thinking about you all the time and whatever. And um, and now Sturgill just put out something new that is completely the other <laughs> way around. It was just like, holy shit, like I, you know... Um, it 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 blows my mind that like he can just like buck the system and people love it more. Yeah. You know, it's like it's it's just it's just so interesting. Um but you know, there are albums that um you know I let my kid grab off the shelf because yeah, that's a old Simon and Garfunkel record that I don't play all that much and you know, maybe we will someday or whatever, but yeah, sit on that or you know, you know, tear it up or whatever you want to do. And then there's records where it's like, "Ooh, okay, let's put that one back <laughs> over here." Um, but yeah, I really do look forward to uh to that. That's definitely part of the uh that was actually a question between me and some of my record collector friends was I I'm a guy who trades in records to get new ones. Okay. I I very much dislike the idea of uh, on a budget, you know, trying to throw new money at a bunch of records all the time because it's just very, very expensive. So I'll call the collection and go like, yeah, I mean, I'll take this stack to Grimey's or put this on sale on Discogs and go like, okay, have at it because someone else should enjoy this. But then I got to thinking like as, you know, my wife and I discovered, you know, we were going to have a baby and stuff. Well, how much of this stuff should I should I be saving sure. so that he can experience it? Like, just because I don't like it anymore, I'm not going to listen to it. Am I doing a disservice to my unborn child <laughs> that he's not going to discover this record in my collection? And the general feedback I got from friends was like, "No, that's you do you, you know." And so, not so many words. He will find, you know, whatever he's going to find, and and don't try to dictate that journey you know, yourself necessarily, you know, like, um, I can introduce him to music on vinyl certainly, but do I need to now save everything because he might think this record's really cool? Well then, I mean, then what's the definition of hoarding? You know, like, I mean, it's just like you're doing it for a purpose that's not solely your own, uh, or, or versus, I guess it is solely your own. If you're trying to like really dictate that, um, that can just be a a weird route to go down. You know what? I think this is like a phenomenal place to start to wrap up. I just want to say, Jim, thank you for doing this. This is great. Yeah. I apologize for the rambling. Please, that no, this, show. Makes no this has been phenomenal. Uh, this is this is really fun. I love that we have not been kicked out of this uh, this studio. It's uh, it's been it's Do been we quite even nice have to, to like reserve the time. I don't feel like anyone knows that we're here. I don't. Know. Yeah, <laughs> this is for to give people an idea. Uh, the, we're at the Russell Hotel in Nashville, and to give people an idea, this is an old church that's converted into a boutique hotel. And they have a podcast studio. Because yeah, um, why not? Because why not? Because because it's 2019. Um, and uh, but I will say for all the um, if you go to their website for all the you know clearly like influencer audience that they want to get here, I will say that they do have a program uh, called Rooms for Rooms that they do for the homeless community here in Nashville. That really that I didn't know about until this morning when my wife and I were learning more about the hotel. So I'll, I'll speak to that. That they're clearly doing good. They are. Um, you know, for 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 the fact that we've been staring at a neon sign that says hashtag blessed <laughs> in this room for two hours. Uh, that that I will say that is a phenomenal thing to do uh, with the with the homeless community here in here in Nashville. So you can read more about it. I'm sure on their website. So they're getting a plug here. 
Uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll to, certainly to post it. about that on, yeah, on, yeah. on our website. But uh, uh, Jim, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Brian, Dave, thank you so much, man. I appreciate yeah, you guys we, uh, so much. We, we love the pod, and uh, I know we're going to be in touch here about all this sort of uh, about about talking more in the future. This was great. Awesome. Thank you so much. So, if you've gotten to this part in the podcast, thank you very much for listening. We highly appreciate it. I know this has been a fantastic conversation. Come back. I think our schedule will probably be maybe either another two days, put something out, another two weeks, not entirely sure. <laughs> but we'll hold hands. We'll say kumbaya. We will fight fish myopia. We will fight fish myopia. And we will go beyond the pond. Osiris.